Good morning. It's great to be with you today. As you might have noticed, Pastor Kevin is not here. The, uh, the Taylors are in Wisconsin for a family wedding this weekend. Um, if you're on Facebook and are, happen to be a Facebook friend with Pastor Kevin, you might have seen a video yesterday. You know what I'm talking about? So, so, so Kevin uh, went back to his, uh, his elementary school in his hometown with his, with his brother Dan, maybe his brother Mark was there too, and Kevin did a handstand and then started walking. He was like walking on his hands. Like it's really impressive. Um, uh, don't look it up now. You can do it later. Uh, uh, do it during the boring parts of the sermon. I'll, I'll let you know when that's going to be. But like that was, that was really, <laughs> really impressive. I, was, I had to watch it twice. I was like, what, what have they done to this video to make it look like Pastor Kevin is walking on his hands? Uh, my name is Mike Murray. My wife, Nikki, and I are directors of, of a campus ministry at NMU called Chi Alpha Christian Fellowship. And I also have the honor to serve as one of the deacons here at Silver Creek. And uh, as, as a deacon, can I let you in on a little secret? All right, Pastor Kevin is watching this and he's nervous right now. <laughs> the secret is this. We, we are in a, in a good place here as a church family, but the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. And it's not just because our pastor can walk on his hands. Although, that's part of it, but the best is yet to come. So let's pray that God gives us the courage and power to move forward with him to what he's calling us to do. So we are starting a series today on the final hours of Jesus' life and ministry here on earth, and uh, it's called The Final Hours. Um, many Christian traditions refer to this time of year as Lent. So to, to figure out Lent, you find a calendar, you find Easter on that calendar, and count back 40 days, and this is the Lenten season. If you're from a Catholic background, this is familiar to you, a Lutheran background, Orthodox, some others, this is a familiar idea. In, in our flavor of Christianity, we, we don't put a lot of special emphasis on the full 40 days of Lent, but we do recognize that this season is a solemn preparation for the celebration of Jesus. We're, we're celebrating Jesus, we're celebrating his life, his death, and especially his resurrection. It's a time to tell ourselves individually and as a family of believers, as a church family, to slow down and remember what Jesus has done for us. Easter Sunday is two weeks from today, and everything on the church calendar builds toward that day, toward the day of resurrection, the most important event in human history. So Pastor Kevin is going to talk about the resurrection in two weeks, uh, but we kind, of, we kind of get resurrection, right? We, we kind of know what it means. They, they killed Jesus on a Friday night, and he rose on a Sunday morning. I hope I didn't spoil the story for anyone. We're good. He rose on a Sunday morning, and this is why most Christians around the world gather on Sunday morning. We're declaring to each other, we're declaring to the world around us that our God reigns. Jesus rose from the grave. He conquered sin and death so that we can have a full, abundant life here on earth and then spend eternity in his presence. This is what resurrection means. This is why resurrection matters. We, we know this. Without resurrection, Christianity is meaningless. Have you thought about that? It's foolishness. It's an empty philosophy. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians, for if there is no resurrection of the dead, 
then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. So pretty straightforward. Resurrection gives meaning to everything we do. But what about the stuff that happened right before the crucifixion and resurrection? The stuff leading up to that. Why is that stuff important? And what does it mean? Especially the Thursday, Friday, and Sunday. The gospel writers used a lot of ink to tell us about these days. The Thursday of of Holy Week, Good Friday, and Resurrection Sunday. They spent a lot of ink on this and were compelled to dig in and figure out what it means. What What are they telling us? So next week, Pastor Kevin will We'll be looking at Good Friday. The week after that on Easter Sunday, he'll be looking at the resurrection. And today, we'll look at the events of the Thursday of Passion Week. Uh, Some traditions call it Maundy Thursday. Some call it Holy Thursday. So the New Testament begins with four books that are essentially mini biographies of Jesus. Uh, We refer to them as the Gospels. Gospel simply means good news. These books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are the good news of Jesus, the life and teachings of Jesus from four different points of view. And all of the events that we'll be talking about with the crucifixion and resurrection, the, the events leading up to that, come from these four Gospels. They all emphasize slightly different points, and not one of them gives a comprehensive, all inclusive overview. So here's what we're going to do. Rather than focus on one writer's account, we'll go, th- go through the story, scene by scene, step by step, weaving in details from all four of the writers. But there's a lot happening here. So uh, we're not going to cover every detail. We have lives to live and meals to eat today. But, but at the same time, we'll be able to go deeper than just the highlights. And if you want to study this uh, at home, Go for it. I encourage you to do that. You can read all four versions separately in Matthew chapter 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, John 13, and also uh, a bit in John 18. So this would be a great week to do that. Uh, Just take take a day, go through Matthew 26, take another day, go through Mark, and and get the full picture of what we're talking about when we we look at Holy Thursday. So uh, take some time to do that this week. All right, so we're talking about Thursday, but before we, before we get to Thursday, we have to go back a few days to the previous Sunday, the day known as Palm Sunday. So this was the day Jesus and his disciples come into Jerusalem, the big city for the Passover celebration, one of the biggest events of the year on the Jewish calendar. They're coming into the city. Jesus and his disciples are not from the city. They're, they're not they're not city boys, they are country boys. So if, if Marquette is the equivalent of Jerusalem, and, and actually the current population of Marquette is similar to what the population of Jerusalem was at that time. So let's say Marquette is Jerusalem, then these guys, Jesus and the disciples, are from Kiva and Tronic, all right? Or going the other way, Humboldt and Diorite, okay? You, you get, get the picture, these guys are from small towns and villages in the, in the outlying areas. So it's a big deal to come to the city because when, when you come to Jerusalem, there's an Applebee's there. <laughs> Jerusalem has a Starbucks, a Meyer, stuff that they don't have in the village. So they're excited about this. They get to come to the big city. 
And as they come into the city, Jesus finds a donkey to ride upon. He's, as he rides along, a crowd gathers around him. They've heard about this man. He's a miracle worker. He's a prophet. They think, maybe he's the Messiah we've been waiting for. Maybe he is the one who will save us from these Roman occupiers. Maybe. So he rides along, and the people take off their cloaks and spread them on the ground in front of him. They cut down palm branches and throw them into the road. They shout, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They shout, Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna means save us. These people believe that Jesus can save them. They're ready to make him their king. And the disciples are right there with them. They're right there with the crowd, waiting for him to take his throne. That was Sunday, and now this is Thursday. It's the first day of the Festival of Unleavened Bread, one of the highlights of their year. It's the, the day of the Passover meal, the annual remembrance of the time when God miraculously rescued his people, the Israelites, from slavery in Egypt, which was about 1,400 years before Jesus. So every year they celebrate this and remember it. The Passover meal must be eaten within the city walls of Jerusalem. It must be eaten after sundown. And this is the day. And his disciples ask Jesus about the preparations. They're wondering, what are we going to do today to celebrate? So he sends Peter and John into Jerusalem. He tells them, as you enter the city, you will see a man carrying water. Follow him. And at the house he enters, go to the owner and say, the teacher wants to know where he and his disciples can celebrate the Passover meal. He will take you upstairs to a large room that's already set up. So Peter and John go into the city and they find everything exactly as Jesus had described. The Bible doesn't give us exact, the exact location of the meal, but we have, we have some clues. First of all, we have a man carrying water. In this culture, there are only two categories of people who would carry water. The women of the household, if there weren't any servants, or the servants. So this man was most likely a servant. Another clue, a clue is the large room on the second story of the house. At this time, most houses in Jerusalem have, have one floor, and those houses that, that are two stories are located within an area of Jerusalem called the upper city. So most of the two-story houses are in this, this neighborhood called the upper city. So based on the presence of a servant and a large upper room, we can make an educated guess that this home belonged to a relatively wealthy family. So the preparations for the meal have been completed. Jesus and his disciples gather in this upper room of the house. And the Passover is an intimate gathering. It's, it's one or two families together to celebrate and eat, eat this lamb. And by eating with his disciples, this is an important point that we'll come back to. By eating with his disciples, Jesus is reinforcing the idea that he sees his followers as family. Okay, this is a family event, and he is eating with his disciples. So around 520 years ago, Leonardo da Vinci decided to apply his considerable artistic genius to bringing this scene to life, and here's what he came up with. Leonardo was a great artist, but he wasn't much of a historian. Because as we look at the picture, 
it appears that the only thing he got right is that there are 13 men in the room. The room is wrong, the dishes are wrong, the food is wrong, the clothes are wrong, the table is definitely wrong. According to the customs of the times, here's a more accurate picture of what was happening that night. Rather than sitting on chairs, Jesus and his disciples were most likely lounging around a low table, resting on cushions with their legs under them and behind them. There would be platters of food in the middle of the table, and they would serve themselves from those platters and probably eat with their right hand. A key detail for us is the disciples' feet. Ordinarily, in the typical home of a wealthy family, there'd be a servant on hand to wash the feet of the guests as they came in, definitely before they sat down for a meal. This task was reserved for the the lowest servant in the household because it was a terrible job. Remember that the people in that region at that time primarily got around by walking. It was dusty and dirty, and their feet would be caked with dirt. Just, Just imagine it. There's dirt on the tops of their feet, on the bottoms of their feet, around their ankles, between their toes, under their toenails. Guests would come in and the lowest servant would grab a towel, get some water, and go to work. So as these men, as Jesus' disciples, begin to eat their Passover meal, there's an elephant in the room. I don't have a picture of the elephant, don't worry. The elephant in the room is their unwashed feet. They're all thinking about it, but no one says anything. This family probably has a servant, but for whatever reason, that servant isn't there tonight. And none of the disciples wants to acknowledge that he might be the lowest ranking servant in the room. They walked in here thinking that Jesus is about to inaugurate his kingdom. Remember Sunday? People are ready to make him the king. These disciples are thinking, When Jesus becomes king, he's going to give us jobs to do. He's going to appoint governors. He's going to name a secretary of state, secretary of the treasury, homeland security. I mean, there are a lot of good jobs that are are going to come. No one in that room is thinking about being a servant, except for Jesus. So Jesus, king of kings, lord of lords, son of God, agent of creation, gets up from the table, takes off his outer robe, wraps a towel around his waist and starts to wash the feet of these ordinary humans with their pride and insecurities and selfishness and posturing and dirt between their toes. He knows, he knows that one of them will betray him this very night. He knows that another will deny even knowing him. He knows that every single one of them will desert him before morning, but he does it anyway. And this act is such a violation of the social norms that Peter protests. He finds it unthinkable that the rabbi would serve them in this way. He tells Jesus, you'll never wash my feet. And Jesus said, unless I do, you won't belong to me. So of course, Peter goes to the other end of the spectrum and says, oh, well, wash wash my hands and my head too. Wash everything. Jesus finishes and he sits down and he says, do you understand what I was doing? Did you get what I was doing there? You call me teacher and Lord, and this is right because that's who I am. But since I've washed your feet, I want you to wash each other's 
feet. I've given you an example to follow. Do as I have done. They continue eating. Jesus tells them that one of them will betray him. Imagine this. Imagine being one of the disciples. These are the men you've lived with every day for the last three years. You know everything about them. Jesus says, one of you will betray me. And they're, they're shocked. They start to look around the room, look around the table, trying to pick up any sign of treachery in the faces of the men they've spent three years with. Who could it be? I couldn't be the one, could I? Of course, Judas has already agreed to betray Jesus to the religious leaders. Jesus knows this. At one point, Jesus even dips some bread into a bowl and offers it to Judas. This is a great sign of honor, and Judas accepts it and eats it. Like, this is, this is appalling to us, but the original readers of the gospel, the gospels would have been horrified by this action. Betraying one's host at a meal was especially treacherous. There was a story from around this time that there were two warriors preparing to face each other in battle. And just before this confrontation, they learned that their fathers had shared a meal together a generation earlier. And because table fellowship was so important, the warriors called off their fight because of this family history. That's how important the table was. Yet here's Judas enjoying a free meal with the man he's already agreed to betray. Jesus eventually dismisses Judas to go off and do what he's committed to do. As they continue to eat the meal, Jesus takes bread, breaks it, and gives it to the disciples. It was customary for the leader of this feast to say a prayer and pronounce a blessing over the bread and wine. But Jesus does something highly unusual. He says, take this and eat it, for this is my body. Which is really strange, which was not normal. Then he picks up the cup, gives thanks, and offers it to them. Each of you drink from it, he said, for this is my blood which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It's poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. Mark my words, I will not drink wine again until the day I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The Passover meal has four cups of wine, and it appears from the gospel accounts that Jesus abstains from the fourth one. He, he drinks the first three and doesn't drink the fourth. It's like he's pressing pause on this Passover meal and waiting until we can join him. He's looking forward to that day when we will join him in his father's kingdom. So the meal winds down, they sing a hymn, they head out. Jesus has tried to prepare his disciples for the events that are about to take place. He's, he's tried. He, he's told them he's going to be betrayed. He's told them he's going to be handed over to sinners. He's told them multiple times that he's going to be put to death. And they still don't get it. On the way to the Garden of Gethsemane, on the Mount of Olives, which was about a 15 to 20 minute walk away, he tells them that all of them will desert him. Peter says, never, I would die for you. And we can, we can imagine Jesus stopping and turning and looking Peter right in the eyes and saying, die for me. 
Before dawn, you'll deny three times that you even know me. Peter says, never, I would die for you. And all the others say the same. So they get to the garden, which is a privately owned olive grove. Jesus leaves most of his disciples and goes in a little, a little deeper with his inner circle, Peter, James, and John. And he leaves them, tells them to, to sit and pray and watch, kind of posting them as sentries. And he goes in a little farther. Jesus is overcome thinking about the task before him. He falls to the ground in anguish, praying, Father, if it's possible, if it's possible, let this cup of suffering be taken from me. Yet, I want your will to be done, not mine. And he goes back to his disciples, finds that they're asleep, tells them again, keep watch and pray. Luke writes that an angel from heaven appears to strengthen Jesus, who's in such agony that his sweat is falling like drops of blood. So he prays again, if this cup cannot be taken, unless I drink it, your will be done. He's submitting himself to the will of the Father. Again, he finds his disciples asleep. When he's done praying a third time, Judas arrives with a crowd of men, most likely the temple guard. They're carrying clubs and swords and lanterns and torches. It's late at night, possibly around midnight, and it's dark. So Judas has given the men a prearranged signal. Arrest the one I greet with a kiss. They get to the garden. Judas goes straight to Jesus, says, Greetings, Rabbi, and kisses him. John adds a detail that the others don't that I, I really love. At this point, Jesus steps forward and says, Who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. And as he says it, they fall backwards. The power of the name of God. At this point, Peter pulls out one of the swords that they have. And I don't know how you do this, but he sliced off the right ear of the servant of the high priest. Like, how wildly do you have to swing to, to get an ear? Like, wouldn't you go this way? No. So he slices off the ear of this servant, and Jesus bends over, picks it up, heals the ear, tells him to put the sword away. And then all of the disciples run away, just as Jesus knew they would and he's taken into custody. Pastor Kevin will pick up the story next week. But first, is there anything from Thursday? Is there anything about this day, the six-hour time period, that we can carry with us? There's a lot happening, but what does it mean? What does it matter? Here's what I see. Holy Thursday is not simply an account of historical events leading up to the crucifixion and resurrection. Holy Thursday is an invitation. Holy Thursday is an invitation. And there are three parts to this invitation. First, Jesus invites us to join his table. Jesus invites us to join his table. The Passover meal was meant to be eaten with family. It's an intimate gathering. The fact that Jesus ate with his disciples tells us that he sees his followers as family. Not just those, not just the original 12. There's a moment in, in Matthew chapter 12 where Jesus is in a house teaching and his mother and brothers are outside and somebody, somebody tells him, your, your mother and brothers are outside, they wanna to talk to you. And he says, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And he points at his disciples 
and says, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus invites us to his table. If you've ever run from Jesus, he invites you to his table. If you've ever denied knowing Jesus, he invites you to his table. If you've ever betrayed Jesus, he invites you to his table. He dipped the bread into the bowl and handed it to Judas. He was saying, I know what you're thinking. I know what you're planning, but it's not too late for you. When we come to Jesus' table, we do it in remembrance of the new covenant that he inaugurated by dying on the cross and rising from the grave. This new covenant says that if we place our faith and trust fully in Jesus, then when God looks at us, he doesn't see us anymore in our sinfulness and rebellion and selfishness and imperfection and brokenness. Now, if we're in Christ, if we join him at his table, when God looks upon us, he sees the perfection of Jesus. He sees the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus' perfection is credited to our account. And because of this, we can be in relationship with God. The Apostle John writes in Revelation 3, Jesus says, Look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. Jesus invites us to join his table. Second, Jesus invites us to join his mission. And what is that mission? Jesus came to serve in love to get more people to the table. It's the mission of Jesus, get more people to the table. In Matthew chapter 20, there's, there's a, a scene where James and John are, are kind of angling and posturing for positions of authority and honor in Jesus' kingdom. And he tells them, this is how the rulers of this world operate. This is how they work. They're always grabbing, scheming for more power. But that's not how it will be with you. If you want to lead, you must become a servant. He said, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. And this was the whole point of the foot washing. Philip Yancey writes, Jesus gave us a model for the work of the church at the Last Supper. While his disciples kept proposing more organization, hey, let's elect officers, establish hierarchy, set standards of professionalism, Jesus quietly picked up a towel and basin of water and began to wash their feet. Later on in John 13, Jesus says, so now I am giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. He said, love one another, love your neighbor as yourself. And the word love here means self-sacrifice for the good of another, putting the other person's needs ahead of your own. Jesus invites us to join his mission. And finally, Jesus invites us to join in his suffering. That's not a popular idea, right? Like we can get behind joining the table. We can get behind joining his mission. What's this idea about suffering? So here's here's the deal. Mission and suffering go hand in hand. This is what Jesus has shown us. 
John chapter 12, Jesus said, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. If we want our lives to count, we have to die to our own agenda, die to our own opinions and preferences. We have to die to our plans and let Jesus take over. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus said, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross and follow me. He said, take up your cross. Take up your cross, that instrument of torture, that symbol of suffering and shame and ridicule and rejection and self-denial. Pick that up. He said, if you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. Holy Thursday is an invitation. Jesus invites us to join his table, to join his mission, and to join us to join in his suffering.